All right, you can open in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 8. We've heard a lot of different voices as we've walked through uh, the book of Proverbs. In, in chapter 1, there was sort of the violent, we, we might say the violent gang member who's like, hey, come, run with us, let's take advantage of people, let's, let's cause violence to people, let's hurt people in order to enrich ourselves. We heard, we heard that voice. We heard the voice of, uh, of the, the seductress who, who spoke words of flattery and, and, and deceit and fantasy. We saw that in chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. We saw, uh, uh, you know, in the beginning of chapter 6, we heard the words of of the wicked who speaks deceitful words and harmful words and divisive words. We've heard a lot of different voices that are warned against in the book of Proverbs, but there's there's one voice that's meant to sort of outshine them all, and that's the voice of wisdom. And so as you, and we'll read through passages of Proverbs 8. By the time we're done, we'll have read the entire uh, text. But you'll notice that the majority of Proverbs chapter 8 is, is the voice of who we call Lady Wisdom. And almost all of chapter 8 is, is what might be called an autobiography of Lady Wisdom. So I want to I want to take a few minutes and just explain up front how we should think about Lady Wisdom. You know, it's, it's kind of a, you know, especially for those of us who maybe wrestle with, with poetry, this idea of Lady Wisdom calling out. Somebody came to me and said, who is she anyways? So let's talk about that. Well, we've said this a couple of times, that, that Lady Wisdom is a personification of God's wisdom. And that is, personification is assigning human-like qualities to something that typically doesn't have human-like qualities. In this case, it's giving voice, it's, it's giving will, it's giving these human-like qualities to an attribute of God, the attribute of God that we call wisdom. And we've said that that means that God and God alone is intrinsically wise. We saw that in Proverbs chapter 2, verse Six, for the Lord gives wisdom. Where does wisdom come from? Where must wisdom come from? It comes from God who is intrinsically wise. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. So God supremely and infinitely possesses wisdom in and of himself, which means he always discern, he always, well, he knows everything, right? But wisdom is that he knows it, but he discerns the right path, and he always chooses the right way for the right reasons. He always acts in accordance with what is best because he is infinitely wise, and he is infinitely good, and he is always bringing about good and right ends because he is wise to do that. Okay, Romans eleven thirty three. when Paul's been answering a really difficult question about salvation, how come these guys are saved and these aren't? What, what is his answer? Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. So, so it's to plumb his depths is to see that he's always good. He's always acting in wisdom. So lady wisdom then is a picture of that. It's, it's a metaphor. It's an image. And so we might say this, because we're going to talk a lot about Christ this morning. So you're saying, well, is Lady Wisdom just Jesus? Well, it's probably a little simplistic to say Lady Wisdom is, is Jesus. right? Here's how we should understand that. Where Lady Wisdom is, is a metaphor, a picture of God's wisdom, 
Jesus comes, even as, as Neil prayed, as the exact representation of God's nature. Right? So, so wisdom sort of pictures something in God. Jesus comes as the exact representation of God's nature. And so since Jesus, when he was after his resurrection, he, he, he taught us that all the Old Testament is, is building towards him. All the Old Testament is kind of pointing towards him. We, we might think about lady wisdom this way. I think we should see this lady as a shadow of the glory of Jesus who most clearly will reveal who God is and what he's like. Does that make sense? I shouldn't ask that. Just, I'll keep trying to explain it. So Jesus is then called in the New Testament the wisdom of God. Right? Even as a young boy, Jesus sat in the temple and he's teaching and answering questions from adults who have been studying the, the, the Old Testament their entire lives. And the Gospels record this, that all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and at his answers. Right? They were astonished by his wisdom because he's, he's God incarnate. He is the exact representation of God the Father. As an adult... As Jesus' teaching, the Gospels again tell us that the crowd asks this, what is this wisdom that's been given to him? The crowd is astonished by the wisdom of Christ. Jesus himself said in the Gospels that, you know, the queen of Sheba is going to stand up and they're going to condemn this generation because this queen came all the way to hear this wisdom from, from Solomon And yet someone greater than Solomon is here. He was talking about himself. Someone greater than Solomon. What's Solomon known for? His great wisdom. Someone greater than Solomon is here in the person of Jesus Christ. And again, Paul speaks of Jesus as the very incarnation of God's wisdom. He says, Christ became to us, Paul, or Neil read this this morning, Christ became to us wisdom from God. So, as we think about the words of of wisdom here, we do it with the understanding that it's pointing forward and it's illustrating something that's true of Christ. So, with all that kind of laid out, hopefully we can dive into this text and, and better understand it. Here's the point this morning. You can root your life in Christ. Or maybe better yet, you must root your life in Christ and His Word because He is the wisdom of God. You must root yourself in Christ and His Word because He is the wisdom of God. All right, so let's dive into the text here. We've got four things that are true about wisdom in Proverbs chapter 8. The first is this, wisdom is available. All right, wisdom is available. As I read the first nine verses, see if you can connect the dots here from the text to the, to the point here. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates, in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries aloud. To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. From my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness and abomination, wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Wisdom is available. So chapter 8 
starts with these two rhetorical questions. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? Right? And you guys know the point of a rhetorical question, right? It's, the, the answer is so obvious, it's implied in the question. Yes. Yes, wisdom cries out. Yes, understanding raises her voice. And so from the opening verse of chapter 8, we see that, that God's wisdom is demonstrated. It's not a secret matter. God is not a, a cosmic Easter bunny who has sort of hid these gems in these bushes and, and laughs as we kind of go about trying to discover them. Wisdom He has made available. And we see that a couple or well, three different ways in, in those first few verses there. We see at first where she's calling out from. All right, where has she gone to announce herself in Proverbs chapter 8? Well, it says she sits in the elevated place along the path, right? We said that path or, or way is, is talking about your, this life's journey. As you're kind of going through life, wisdom is calling out. She's at the crossroads, which we may think more like, well, I can go this way or this way. Really, I think the, the idea in Proverbs chapter 8, the crossroads is a busy place. It's a busy intersection. She's going to the place where people are going to be crossing paths. As she cries out, she goes to the place where the most people are going to hear her voice. Also, where, where else is she? She's in the city gate, right? She's in the portal to the city. Well, what goes on there? All the business of a city. Remember when we were in Ruth, where, does the, where do these transactions happen? Well, they happen at the gate of the city. So this idea of where she's calling out from is meant to teach us that she's not hiding her message. She's in the crowded places, not locked away in a chest somewhere. Notice also how the text describes like how she's calling out. She's not whispering, right? She is not... Oh, like we'll see next week. She's not like boisterous and annoying like the, the foolish lady in Proverbs chapter 9. But she does cry out loudly. She is raising her voice there in verse 1. She issues her call aloud in verse 3. Wisdom is available. Notice also who her audience is. Look, beginning there in verse 4. Actually, at verse 4, you, kind of, you start to hear from her herself. Right To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of men. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. So our call is issued to the children of man. That's children of Adam. That's humanity. Right To the simple ones. We've talked in, in this Proverbs series often, um, so I don't want to rehash everything every week, but the simple are those who, have, who are sort of haven't made up their mind yet whether they're going to begin walking down the path of wisdom or walking down the path of folly. Okay, and she even issues her call to the fool. And the fool, according to Scripture, says in his heart, there is no God. The fool is walking the path of folly and has a chance to turn and to turn back to the Lord. She calls out to everyone along the way, alerting them to her, her hope, and her message. So wisdom, then, is not some kind of secret matter that's reserved just for a, a select few. You know, maybe there's one or two in the church that can be wise. It's not that. So as we think about how this, we, we, we said that Lady Wisdom is kind of a, a picture of what Jesus will more fully embody. 
So as you think about how this points to Christ, we would say that Jesus, again, in, in whom are hidden all the riches of wisdom and knowledge, he didn't just come to display God's wisdom, right? He did do that. He, he, he glorified the Father at all times by displaying the character and the attributes of God as the Son of God incarnate. But he didn't just come to display wisdom. He came to make us actually wise. Right? He came to make wisdom available. He came humbly, and he came publicly, right? calling people to turn to him, calling people to trust in him. And in his work, in his ministry on earth, he not only, he, he not only walked in perfect wisdom, and therefore, perfectly obeying the Father, being able to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins, offer the forgiveness of sins in His death and in His resurrection for all those who would turn and trust in, in His work. He did that, and we sing about that, and we rejoice in that. But anyone who turns to Him and is forgiven and is reconciled to God, He begins the process of molding you and shaping you into His image. He begins imputing his very character into you. So he forms his character in his people. Now that's a process, right? We're not where we want to be. We're not where we will be. One day we'll be perfectly like Christ. But this is what Christ has come to do, to forgive on the basis of his works and his work alone, but to then begin the process of conforming you to his image. And what's that image? It's godliness, right? We want to be like Christ. We want to be like Christ. As you think about, we'll, we'll see in a minute, these list of words that sort of describe wisdom, noble, right, true, straight paths. We're reminded that and we've said this quite a bit, but it doesn't hurt us to hear it. We're reminded that wisdom and godliness coincide. Right? Wisdom and godliness coincide. You cannot walk in ungodliness and claim to be walking in wisdom. So God's agenda for all of us, for those who have come to Christ, is, is not just that we would gain some kind of additional knowledge just so that we can be smarter people. But it's learning to actually put what we know into practice that we might look like Jesus Christ. So wisdom pictures Jesus. And as we look at then the message of Christ or the message of wisdom, we might say this. You can, you can root your life in the Word of God, in ultimately the message that speaks of Christ. Look in verses 6 or 9. She says she speaks noble things. She speaks true things. She speaks righteous things, just things. Right? In a world of perverse speech, crooked ideas, deceptive ideologies, false teaching, you can count on God's truth. You can count on God's wisdom. Her words are noble. From her lips come what is right. She utters truth. She speaks righteous words. Her message is, is indeed straight, and it is right. 
The idea is that there's an integrity of her words that are not found elsewhere in the world. There's a a trueness that's not found elsewhere. God's word, his revealed word, is, is capital T, truth, right? Incomparable to the rest of this world. I like the way uh, Derek Kidner said, said it. He said, wisdom is down to earth, but it is anything but worldly. Right? Wisdom is down to earth, but it is anything but worldly. The message of wisdom is dependable. It's accurate. And her words, she says, bring healing and life. Not only that, but she says, that we, I, I reject any association with wickedness, perverseness, crookedness, They're not found on her lips. She does not misstate the truth. She does not twist reality with the intent to deceive others. So we're we're applying it this way. You can count, you can you can count on God, you can rely on his word, you can trust his son, because his words are perfect and right and true. And the command there in the text in verse 6 is here. So listen. That's what she's, she's kind of laying out a case for why you should listen. Learn wisdom. Learn what God is like and who he is. Look to Jesus to see the one in whom there is no sin, whose ways are perfectly upright, who never sinned once even in his speech. And we've talked about how like your words come from your mouth. And that's why James says like almost impossible to control your tongue because your heart is deceitfully Wicked. Well, Jesus never sinned once. His message was not one of deception, but he came to offer truth. He came to offer himself as the way, the truth, and the life. Wisdom is calling out, listen to me. When Jesus comes and he, he, he's on the mountain and he, he's, he sort of unveils the, the, the shining splendor of his glory on what we, we, we call the Mount of Transfiguration, you know, and, and Peter you know, of course, it had to be Peter who thinks, I should say something. I should give a speech, right? And so Peter starts to talk, and God the Father interrupts Peter, and, and he says, this is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. And so we see there in, in Proverbs chapter 8 that, that wisdom is available, And God has made it specifically available in Jesus Christ. God has publicly declared Jesus to be the Son of God, specifically at the resurrection that demonstrated to the world that Jesus is who He says He is, and He did what He said He would do. Through, then, the Bible, what's the role of the Bible? It's to testify to Christ. It's to point us to Christ. It's to teach us about the will of God and the character of God. So through the pages of Scripture, then we learn of God, His will, His character, of His Son, of His Spirit, what He's up to, and through its pages we become wise. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Right? The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So wisdom is available. Secondly, wisdom is precious. Look there in verse 10. Take my instruction instead of silver and my knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, 
pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me, and filling their treasuries. So then this this next section, then we we say wisdom is precious or wisdom is valuable because it's bookended by this idea that we've seen a couple of different times in Proverbs that wisdom is to be valued above gold, is to be valued above silver, and is to be valued above precious stone. And I wonder, I wonder where our hearts are at this morning in terms of desiring wisdom. Do you really desire to fear God, to grow in the fear of the Lord, to put on to a greater degree wisdom, to walk in His ways, to be truly wise, to be conformed to Christ? You know, none of us will find ourselves in, in King Solomon's situation, right? That was a unique time, and, and Solomon was a king over Israel. So don't expect this tonight when you fall asleep. But God shows up to Solomon and speaks to Solomon. And he, and he asked, what shall I give you? Right? What shall I give you? Think about it. If you find yourself in that moment, and, and you won't, but imagine. God says, what do you want? What do you want right now? I'll give it to you. Now, many of you know the way the story ends, so you're like, of course, I would do what Solomon did. You're cheating, right? Try to be a, a, a bit realistic. What is it? That is, that is the longing desire of your heart that if you were completely honest, you would say, well, I would have to say this. Maybe it is gold, silver. Maybe it is popularity or comfort or success or pleasure. What is it that your heart is longing for that if you were completely honest, you'd say, I, I want that thing, and that is the thing that I think will truly satisfy Well, God actually commends Solomon's answer. He asked for wisdom to lead the people of God, to be able to to discern between right and wrong. And God says, well, he he commends Solomon because he didn't ask for riches, right? He didn't ask for riches. He didn't ask for a long and a prosperous life. He didn't ask for the defeat of his enemies. He asked for wisdom to discern truth from error so that he might faithfully lead God's people. And so I'm just asking, even of myself, is that the desire of our heart? Do we, do we desire wisdom? Do we desire to grow in it? Solomon demonstrates what it is to desire God's wisdom above silver, gold, and precious stone. It's to long for it from the heart. You know, if, 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 that, if the question sort of, uh, the Spirit brings conviction upon you, you ask the Lord to change your heart. Sometimes we think it just means i got to buckle down and I've got to do this and I've got to find a way. Ask the Lord to do it. The psalmist do that all the time. Incline my, ear, uh, incline, uh, my heart to your word and not to selfish gain. Right? Pray that. Incline my heart to your word and not to selfish gain. 
So verse 11 then, look, it takes away anything, not, not just jewels, not just silver or gold. Look at the second part there of verse 11. And all that you may desire cannot compare with wisdom. This is all-encompassing language. Gold, silver, precious stone, or anything else that you can imagine. Wanting above wisdom, put that away. So wisdom, again, revealed in God's Word, revealed in God's Son, is better than anything. And again, we're, we're arguing this ultimately is pointing towards Christ, pointing out something that's true of Christ, and we know that indeed Christ Himself is incomparable. He is our treasure. There is no one like Him. He is the one that our hearts should be longing for and desiring and finding satisfaction in. The chief end of man is to know God and to enjoy Him forever. So the call of Lady Wisdom here to, to find satisfaction and nothing else outside of me, it actually echoes the call of Christ. Right? And Jesus issued a similar call. If you pursue anything above me, pleasure, comfort, money, popularity, then, then wisdom eludes you. If you don't turn from your idolatry and your sin and embrace Christ, you cannot be saved. There's no such thing as like, well, I've, I've taken Christ as my, I, I've sort of cut Christ in half. I'll take the Savior half. I'll leave, you know, sort of the repentance and lordship half. We don't, we don't understand the gospel that way. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So these first 11 verses and sort of form the, the introduction to this autobiography. And then she kind of begins in earnest her story there in verse 12. And she starts by describing her colleagues there. Look there in verse 12. I wisdom dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. So it's like wisdom has some roommates, right? Knowledge, discretion, prudence. You know, we saw this particularly in chapter 1 where wisdom is kind of linked up with all these other words and they're kind of building to, to, to make a similar point. They overlap quite a bit, but we could probably try to nuance each one a little bit, right? We, we've been calling wisdom living God's way in God's world for God's glory. Prudence is, is kind of knowing the ropes, so to speak. It's, it's sometimes translated shrewdness. Right, but not in the negative sense of like the serpent, but like knowing kind of how to navigate this world. Knowledge is to grasp God's word and know how to live in light of it. And discretion, then we would say, is kind of being able to discern between two paths. Again, these these concepts, they, they so overlap, it's almost silly to try to discern them, but they probably kind of make this mosaic, so to speak, that gives us a fuller picture of what wisdom truly is. She has wisdom, discretion, prudence. These are, these are things that are desirable. She has counsel in verse 14. That is uh, advice, counsel is advice for life along the way. And she has insight into the world and the way life works. She has strength and, or, or we might say, might. Right, so you have these, these synonyms, near synonyms in verse 12 and 14, and kind of squeezed in between these two verses, you have almost what it seems a little bit out of place. It's, it's like a parenthetical remark from Lady Wisdom that points us to the fear of the Lord. Right? Did you see that in verse 13? It's kind of like, 
I have this, I have this. And then in verse 13, the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. So it's sort of a parenthetical remark about the fear of the Lord. We've talked quite a bit about the fear of the Lord. Right? We've been calling it a reverential delight in God. Those who know Christ are actually the ones who can properly fear God. Remember we quoted C.S. Lewis. He said this, In God you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. In every respect. If you, if you see God clearly, you see in every way He is infinitely superior to me. And, and, and Lewis says, unless you know God is that, and therefore know yourself to be nothing in comparison to Him. It, unless you know that and you know yourself is nothing, Lewis says, then you, you do not know God at all. right? So without the fear of God, then, the, you know, this these sort of wisdom commands that we get in the text, they become nothing but burdensome tasks by where we think we can earn our own righteousness before God. It becomes kind of checking boxes and think we can impress God. But when God opens your eyes to see the glory of the gospel, and He gives you an understanding of His nature and His ways. You stop seeing Him sort of as a genie who can kind of come alongside your life and make your life easier or make your life better, but you see Him as someone, as, as we read, as immeasurably beyond and superior to us. Yet, through the work of Christ, we might be the beneficiary of the mercy and the grace and the love of God such that we are acceptable in the sight of the one who is immeasurably superior to us. Because God the Father delights in the Son. If we're in the Son, He delights in us even though we come before Him trembling and unable to offer Him anything that might impress Him. Through the work of Christ, we might be acceptable, we might be forgiven of all our sin, stand in righteousness, and marked safe from His just wrath. And then we're in a position to truly fear God. We can delight in God because, as I think Stephen Charnock said, like the sting of God's wrath is left in the sun. Right? There's no more wrath for us to bear because it's been poured out onto Christ and now we can just delight in God and know that there's no more punishment or wrath to be borne by us. And so we might fear God. That's why wisdom here kind of turns to the fear of the Lord as then the polar opposite of arrogance, pride, Right? Look back there in verse 13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and, and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. So if we're going to come to Christ, we, we, we must be humble. Right? You can't come with pride assuming you don't need a Savior. But even for us who have come to Christ, as we grow in the fear of the Lord, as we understand Him to a greater degree, we, we learn to put away selfish ambition, pride, self-centeredness, and to rely on Him more and more. All right, so then Lady Wisdom says this. This sort, of, this sort of fear of the Lord, this sort of wisdom, it's necessary for kings and princes to rule well. Right, it's necessary for kings and princes to rule well. In verse 15, "...by me kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. By me princes rule." And nobles, all who govern justly. 
So a successful ruler needs to fear God and appropriate God's wisdom in order to lead in justice and righteousness. Now, we don't deserve this in our nation. We seem to be kind of trending in the wrong direction. But don't we long for a just and a righteous leader? Right? But I, I'm not sure we do want that, and we're, we're right to want that. But I'm not sure that's the point of, of this passage necessarily. We need to think of it in the context in which it was written. Proverbs was written under the, the Old Covenant. And, and under the Old Covenant, kings were called to, to represent God's rule over His people. They were to walk in wisdom and justice. They were to appropriate the Word of God. They were to know the Word of God so that they might glean wisdom and lead well, right? Some did just okay. Most failed miserably. All were very, very, very imperfect, right? But God had promised a a, a unique ruler. So think about what we've heard from Proverbs 8 and wisdom and what it looks like and how a king has to have wisdom. And flip over with me quickly to Romans, or Romans, Isaiah chapter 11. Back in chapter 6. We'll get to 11 in a second. Back in chapter 6, Isaiah, you guys know that passage. You don't have to turn there if you don't want, but Isaiah had seen the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. These these seraphim, these burning creatures flying back. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You you, you guys know, know the text, so you can read it this afternoon if you're not familiar with that text. But after this, this amazing scene, Isaiah is given like a really hard task, right? He's kind of commissioned to this task, and he's like, well, what's my task? And the task is, you're going to go pronounce judgment on Israel, and you're just going to keep pronouncing judgment on Israel until judgment falls. And what the image of this judgment is there's this tree that sort of represents Israel, and it's going to be hauled away. In fact, it's this idea that this tree is going to be knocked down, and all that's remaining is this stump. That's all that's left. Israel was by all outward appearance, has been absolutely just decimated. But then you get to verse, or chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So this, this stump, this judgment that fell, it just seems lifeless and dead. Israel will have no, no king, no son of Jesse that's kind of sitting on the throne. But there's this, there's this hope still yet in, in the book of Isaiah. There's, there's still life within the stump at some level. From the dead-looking stump will, will come forth this, this tree, this, this branch, and this branch will bear fruit. Now this, again, I sort of alluded to David earlier. Why is this the stump of Jesse? What's going on here? Well, David, King David was the son of Jesse. And this is... So, so this is looking forward to one who will come from the line of David and he will rule on an eternal and a perfect throne. He will rule perfectly. Now look then how, how this ruler is described and think about what we've been learning in Proverbs. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. 
And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see. He will fear God. He will have knowledge and understanding. And he will rule. Right? He will rule in wisdom, perfectly fearing God. Right? In what sense? Again, this is why we talked about like the wrath of God being removed in Jesus Christ. Because in what sense do you think Jesus, this is obviously pointing forward to Jesus. In what sense do you think Jesus feared the Lord? It can't be just fear of punishment from wrongdoing. There is no wrongdoing in the Son of God. And so again, I just remind you, if you're in Christ this morning, your sins have been so completely removed from you that you can delight in the same type of the fear of the Lord that Jesus possessed in his life and ministry. Because in Christ, you find you've been shielded from the wrath of God. All right, so here's this, this, this stump that's coming. He, he, in order to rule well, he needs wisdom and counsel and might. Now let's look over Romans 15. I've already told you it's about Jesus, but Romans 15 makes it really clear. Romans 15, we'll, we'll look there in verse 8 and 9 first, and then we'll hop to the, the quotation of Isaiah 11. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that's the Jewish people, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, then he starts quoting Old Testament passages. Well, look at the, the last one down there, beginning of verse 12. Again, Isaiah says, he's quoting Isaiah 11, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that by, that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So here's this, this ruler from Jesse. It's clearly Christ in Romans 15. And what does Paul say we should do in light of this? Right? He says in light of this, we should glorify God for His mercy in sending the Son not only to die, but to, to establish a kingdom where He will rule and reign in wisdom, in power, in mercy. He will rule well, because he will be filled with all wisdom, right? All right, so wisdom is available. Wisdom is precious, right? And again, it's, we think it's pointing forward to Christ. Wisdom is precious. Wisdom is foundational. Look there, back in Proverbs 8, verse 22. The Lord possessed me, that could be beget me, possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up, at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above. 
when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his, in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man." Wisdom is, again, part of her autobiography. She's boasting that she was there when God created the world. She's saying that wisdom actually precedes this creation, and it is indeed actually the foundation upon which creation was formed. So we see that she, she makes this argument first, that, that she existed before the world existed. She existed before creation existed. Right? She says, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts, ages ago, before the beginning of the earth. She's saying, I preceded all this. Right? I, I was there. You're hearing echoes of Genesis 1 as you read Proverbs chapter 8, when you hear about the, the depths and the fountains springing forth and the mountains and the hills being brought forth. She says she even preceded like the mountains, she preceded the hills, she preceded even the dust, she says. She, she's boasting that not even, not, not even a speck of dust came into existence without wisdom's presence. Okay, not even a speck came into existence without wisdom's presence. She's older than the hills, right? Most of us don't want to be called that, but wisdom is happy with that. I'm older than the hills. And again, she's, what's she trying to do? This is why you should listen. This is why you should hear wisdom. This is why you should throw yourself at it. Because it proceeds from God from all eternity. Right? So Lady Wisdom here suggests that, that she was not only present before creation, but she was involved in the very act of creation. Look particularly there at verse 30. I was bes beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. All right, so two things follow from that, and, and we've got to pick up some speed here. If God exercised wisdom in the, the, the creation of this world, I think wisdom is implying how in the world do you think you're going to make it without wisdom? Right? If God in, in, infused wisdom into this creation and he exercised his wisdom in the way he made this world, then you are absolutely hopeless in this world without God's wisdom. Right? She's boasting, I was there before. I know. I, I, I am like the master behind all, mastermind behind God's creation. Right? I remember the first time I uh, rafted through the Royal Gorge in Colorado. That's my hometown. Sometimes when you grow up next to something, you just don't do it. And so, like, you know, I grew up right next to the Royal Gorge, worked there all these years. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you don't even know what I'm talking about. But in the gorge, like, the rapids get pretty legit, right? It's kind of crazy. Like, you're paddling sometimes, and you paddle, and you hit nothing but air. And you're, like, looking. So, anyways, I go on this raft trip. And on the way up, I'm thinking, all right, do I want, if, if, if the guide falls in the water, do I want to be in the guide with the water? Or would I rather be in the boat, but no guide, just sort of like at the whim of the river, right? And, and, and it turned out that our guide was like the owner of 
with this company called River Masters, all right? He's founded this company. He started, he's been doing the river for like 30 years. So we had the River Master himself, all right? And sure enough, we come across this, this rock's coming up. People sort of panic. The guide can't get people to do what he wants them to do. We hit this rock, and me and the guide and like half the boat fall in the water. But I don't know what's around the bend, right? And they teach you when you fall into the water, like you can swim to shore or you can get another boat. So I'm like, I got to swim to shore because there's a curve coming. I don't know what's over there. So I start swimming to shore and the river master's like, get to the middle of the river. And my heart is like, I don't know what's around the corner. And I'm like ready to argue with the river master, right? But then my mind clicked in, I realized like, okay, this guy, he's been on this river for 30 years. He knows the river. He's guided this river every day. Like he knows the river. So guess what? I should listen to the guy, right? So I, I get to the middle of the river. I quit banging my rocks on these, or my knees on these rocks. So I'm trying to swim. And so anyways, I survived. Um, <laughs> wisdom is saying you should listen to the master, right? You should listen to the one who was there from the beginning. Okay, she knows every rapid, she knows every undertow, she, she knows every contour of this world, and she's saying, so listen to me. Don't be so prideful to rely on your own wisdom. You have limited knowledge. So then, okay, if this is pointing to Christ, if Jesus is the fulfillment of wisdom's imagery, how can we expect to live in this world without Christ? How can we expect to live in this world without Christ? If you have time this afternoon, read Colossians 1 and then reread this section in Proverbs. You'll see that Paul is actually pulling right from this language. The firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the agent of creation in Colossians. In Proverbs 8, kings reign and rule because of wisdom. Well, in Colossians, Jesus is the one who created the kings and the rulers and authorities. So we might say this, and then we'll, we'll do... Uh, point four really fast. There is no wisdom apart from God, and, and you cannot know God apart from Christ. Right? There is no wisdom apart from God, and you cannot know God apart from Christ. So wisdom's available, it's precious, it's foundational, and lastly, then we say wisdom is vital. Vital, not in like it's really important, but vital as in necessary for life. Necessary for life. So we've been saying that wisdom's goal is to be heard, right? She says that again in verse 32, listen to me. In verse 34, blessed is the one who listens to me. We've heard her resume. Her resume is impeccable. Her assets are invaluable. She has little more that she can add to her biography to, to encourage us to listen to her. So she just returns back to like, okay, now I'll tell him again, listen to me, hear me, and, and it's for the good of the hearer, right? There's there's a couple of blessings associated with those who listen to wisdom. One is this idea of blessed is the one who listens. Blessed is the one. We've said that, that that's this, you know, some, some Bibles will say, oh, the happiness of the one. And if we could understand what God means by happiness, that would be true. We might say it's this deep-seated joy and reward that's, that's not tied to circumstances, but it's tied to knowing God and walking in His will. So blessed is the one who listens. Also, in, at the end of the text there, it's life. The second reward is life. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains 
favor from the Lord. So Solomon's already talked about like wisdom to his young son, like wisdom is this beautiful bride that needs to be loved and cherished and, and embraced. And then at verse 34, you say, well, what, blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. So the idea, again, is this, this young man who's waiting for this beautiful bride to come out, and, and he might embrace her and love her and serve her. Why? Well, for whoever finds her finds life. For whoever finds her finds life. He wouldn't miss that for the world. But, verse 36, he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. So, notice the two options. You either find wisdom and and love wisdom, or you hate it. There's no in-between in the text. There's no like, or you guys who just kind of hang out in the middle, you'll be just fine too. You might just... It's not there. It's either you hear instruction and counsel and wisdom or you hate it. So wisdom's plea here is not simply to lecture us, not simply to inform the mind. It's an impassioned plea to turn from folly, turn from foolishness, turn from pride and arrogance and selfish ambition and embrace God, embrace God's word, embrace God's son, Jesus Christ. The one who comes to Christ, passes from life to or excuse me, from death to life, and does not come into judgment, Jesus says in John 5, 24. However, the one who rejects Christ suffers eternal death. All right, so let's end this way. We said early on that wisdom is the ability to know what is the best path forward, right? It's to, it's to discern between two options, and it's to have the skill to kind of bring that about and a willingness to act. And we'll just end by once more kind of glorying in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God demonstrates his wisdom, not only in his son, but he demonstrates it in the way he chose to bring about salvation. In the gospel of his son, he demonstrates his wisdom. And so if wisdom is kind of knowing what to do, the skill to bring it about, and a willingness to do it, we see it really clearly in the gospel. He, he knew what must happen in order to accomplish the redemption for our sins, and he brought it about in the most miraculous way through the death and resurrection of his son, and he was certainly willing to do it because no one takes the life from the son. Jesus willingly lays it down of his own accord. It is, it is from the love of God from which the gospel springs forth. So it's in Jesus, the wisdom of God, is seen and in the gospel it shines brightly and it it, it glorifies him. Right? That's why I asked Neil to preach from or read from 1 Corinthians 1. Because to many that looks like foolishness. To many the, the cross looks like folly. Christ looks defeated and weak. But in God's wisdom, it was through the death of Christ that death itself was conquered. And the power and the wisdom of God are on display in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, to those who are called, to those whose eyes are open, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Let's pray together.